Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Reimagining Work from Within. I'm Jeff Melnick, based in San Francisco. I've been wanting Alan Cairns on the show for quite some time and managed to convince him over a margarita that now was the time, given the current state of play in tech and his passion for purpose-led businesses. I wanted to get his personal perspective on what a culture-first tech sector actually looks like. Alan is a brilliant leader that I've had the pleasure of working with for several years in two different businesses, Moo and iTech Media. Through his career journey, he's successfully transitioned from Chief People Officer to COO, bringing the best bits of the former and learning a lot along the way. He brings positivity, vulnerability, fun, and energy to everything he does. He has worked for and with some of the UK's most celebrated entrepreneurs and advised founders on commercial growth, bringing into play his knowledge, experience, and playbook to help solve scaling challenges. It's so great to have him on the show today. Welcome, Alan. How have you been since the new year? Amazing, actually. Yeah, yeah I had really good Christmas and New Year, lots of time with family, lots of time with friends, parties at different people's houses and everything. Mm -hmm. And that was super, super fun. Yeah. Um, it's been been a joy, really, having a bit of time to actually engage with everyone and get some some good kind of outdoor time as well. That's been fun. Yeah. And does it feel like you've stepped into a new year already? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Chinese or otherwise. Yes. yes. I absolutely <laughs> have. What does the year of, rab of the rabbit bring for you, Alan? Well, who knows what the year of the rabbit will bring, but a purposeful business, I'm pretty sure. Mm, I hope so, yes. <laughs> so we've known each other for quite some time. We worked together when you were at Moo, and then you went on to some other ventures and found us again when you moved to iTech. But you've had quite an interesting career moving through the world of HR and then into a COO role and through ventures. Tell us a little bit about the Allen story. How's your career been? As a young child to today, but give us give us a little bit of flavor of what's what's been the the sort of narrative arc of your career journey, Alan. Absolutely. So the best way to describe this is I've <clears throat> I've always worked for businesses with a true purpose. So back in two thousand seven, I joined Money Supermarket, and Money Supermarket its purpose was to help people to save money. And that's absolutely what we did as a business. It's the company that I have been with the longest. So I was there for eight years in total and really helped to shape the business from a startup that had just IPO'd into a successful FTSE. That was in a people role. I then moved on to there. And this is when Jeff and I met when I went to work for Moo. Again, in a people role, absolutely loved it. Very creative business, really nice vibe. And we did some great work around purpose, around culture, around values, and really helped to kind of shape the business around those central tenants. Absolutely love that. And then both of me, those both of those roles, I mean, Money Supermarket was interesting, I guess, at the time, because that was sort of before the whole purpose zeitgeist was mm. going on. And Money Supermarket, very big brand in the UK. And, and so kind of ahead of the curve. And then the same with Moo. I mean, at Moo, you had great design for everyone as a purpose kind of already embedded there when, when we met, didn't we? That was part of, of what the founder wanted to see in the business. It was something that was really important to him. So, so you've, you've kind of chosen brands that were at the cutting edge of that sort of culture and purpose nexus, weren't you? 
Absolutely. And I think that was very deliberate for me. I've always said that I want to be able to describe a business either by its product or its service so that my children, we could go into a whole different conversation there straight away. All nine of them. All nine of them. (laughs) But so that my children or my parents or my friends could immediately understand what it was that the business did. Probably why I've never worked in crypto. Right. <laughs> More on that in episode two. <laughs> but but feeling so 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 when you went to Money Supermarket and Moo, and we'll and we'll continue on your journey in a, in a second. But when you went to those companies, you were seeking them out. So you were thinking, I need a business that is that is purpose driven. Were you looking for a business that was also sort of culture focused as well? Like you're in a people role, obviously, that'd be important to you. But were the things that you were seeing at Money Supermarket or Moo that were good indicators that this was a business that I knew culture was going to be a driver here? Yeah, it was a really important, I suppose, central tenant of what I was looking for in a business. I may not have used those terms to describe it at the time, But what I was looking for was either something that was broken that needed fixing, so almost like a turnaround, or something that already had a great culture and that you could actually build on top of that. And the money supermarket, it certainly wasn't broken, but the business had just IPO'd and it still felt like a startup and it needed to grow up rapidly to professionalize Mm. because it was suddenly a PLC. And suddenly you had shareholders and analysts looking at it. So that was about going through that journey. I think the the people team was something like three people when I joined and about 30 people when I left. So you can understand the kind of the growth journey that that went on. Yeah. Yeah. And Moo also scaled really fast, quickly the time through the time you were there as well. Hey, that was not a different kind of trajectory in terms of not wanting to be a public business in the same way, but really grew and expanded quickly. What those challenges, is that is that your bread and butter? Is that the joy? Yeah, I think so. I I, I get a real buzz out of that. I think that it's it's you know, obviously with limitless budgets, it's easy to scale. But doing that without a limitless budget and being able to do that carefully and very deliberately, that to me is the most important part of it. And having a founder that you can kind of work shoulder to shoulder with and you can steer and navigate your way through, they're the most important parts for me. What did you notice about the founders of Money Supermarket and Moo? Was there something about those founders that you also noticed as being integral? Yeah, so in in Money Supermarket, I was recruited by Simon Nixon, who was the founder of the business, went on to be chair and then just as a shareholder in the business. So we then hired in a CEO. And in Simon, I noticed someone that was genuinely passionate about what he was doing, that he'd started this business um, after leaving school He'd started a business where he literally knocked on people's doors to sell mortgage products and so on. And from that, he'd learned a lot. And it was all customer feedback. It was people saying, I want this, I don't want that. And then he realized that he could actually set that up online. And suddenly, the business transformed as a result of that. Mm. So what I saw in Simon was someone who was absolutely driven, like one of the most driven people I've ever worked with very, very passionate about what he wanted to do, but didn't have all of the answers. 
So what I found was a nice kind of almost like two cogs fitting together. You know, here's some things right. that I'm good at, you are not, and vice versa, and the, and the two of us fit together very, yeah. very well. Talk, talking about Richard, I learned an awful lot from Richard. He's a creative genius, and you've worked with him as well. You, you, you know this, Jeff. And watching him apply a level of detail that I've never seen in my life before to you know, the way a business card would be shaped, to a font, to a cup, to a notebook, little things like that, that attention to detail yeah. kind of transcribed into make it values was absolutely incredible and a real learning point. But I would say the parallels between the two would be that driven nature combined with a passion for what they were doing. Each one did something completely different, but they were absolutely passionate about that. Yeah, the deep sort of passion within their soul, a purposefulness within them of this is this is what I'm trying to do here. It's it's interesting where that the what and the why come together so closely with founders, right? Like I know why I want this and I know why the world wants this. I know the vision of where I'm going to go, but I can tell you like the beveled edge of the the card that we're about yeah. to invent <laughs> needs to be a quarter of a quarter of a quarter of an inch smaller in order for it to be successful. I think that's there's something about that semi-neurosis in a founder that's kind of important otherwise things get lost don't they yeah they do I, th I think that's a, I think that's a really really good point that that level of detail I mean you heard that Steve Jobs is probably yeah. one of the best examples of that all about the detail yeah yeah and yet we're told of course founders must be visionary they have to always be big picture and yet that's not necessarily the truth they also love to get in the weeds okay back in the weeds with you though so after moo where did we go so after moo i thought i'm going to try and do something i wanted to challenge myself i wanted to do something that i'd never done before so an industry i'd never worked in and also could i make it somewhere super small so i joined two companies in parallel. I joined a startup systematic hedge fund with 12 people in it, again, with a very, very smart founder. And I also joined Octopus Ventures, so a VC, which helped about, there's now 200. At the time, there was probably 100 businesses that they invested in, all different startups at different stages, from a two-person to maybe a two, 300-person business. And in Octopus, it was about helping founders to scale their businesses quicker. And in the hedge fund, it was about scaling the hedge fund in a completely different way, because I was trying to bring in the best PhD systematic mathematicians in the world. I learned things like PhD maths humor, which is a, <laughs> um, it's a particular nuanced humor, believe me. Exceptional. You can roll that out at, at dinner parties today. Absolutely. I'm sure that's, that's a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> it is. Yes. Okay. And, and so, so the notion there's still like, how do we scale through various different means then leading you into where you've been recently at iTech. Indeed. So iTech, I had a reach out from Harley, who's the founder of iTech. I'd only been in the other two roles for, well, it was less than a year. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I was, well, I'm going to be in these two companies for the next five years. But Harley sold me on 
a really strong vision of what the company was going to be. I met a few other people in the business and I thought this potentially is going to be life-changing for me. And it was a great opportunity to take all of the people learnings that I had from different businesses. And I've been in some operational roles before, but to combine those into a COO role and joining a business at the time that had 50, 60 people in it. And and I mean, that seems, looking back, it seems very logical, doesn't it? You've been through these rapidly scaling businesses in a, in a people and culture role. You understand culture. iTech has a desire to be a culture-driven business. It's the perfect match, isn't it, to then go into that COO role. Was that daunting to you, though, to, to, go, to go into the coup? <laughs> to go into the coup. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm a big believer that you should kind of feel the fear and do it anyway. Okay. So with, without a question of a doubt, yeah, because it was something I'd not done before. You know, I'd not run a large engineering team in my life. I'd not run a finance team before. But things like that are great opportunities to challenge yourself and to kind of stretch what you're actually capable of doing. Yeah. And did you, so there was that stretch to, to be able to see, okay, I'm going to need to take these teams at scale now as well, as we start to grow. What did you draw on from, was there experience or qualities of your leadership that you felt that you were going to need to draw on to sort of step into that role? Or was it just, okay, I'm just going to jump into the deep end here and see how we get going. (laughs) There was definitely some just jumping into the deep end, but the, the things that I pulled on, Firstly, where people centricity, having worked in lots of people roles, whomever you are leading accountable for, you know, the, the example I often use is UX and design. You know, I'm not going to be a better UX or designer than a head of UX and design. But what I can do is help them to become a better leader and help to stretch and challenge them in terms of how they're building their team, types of people are bringing into the team and things like that. So without a doubt, there was definitely some jumping in there, but there was some borrowing from other things that I'd done in the past. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's interesting to think about what does it take to scale a business that is purposeful or a business that is culture first. And I think I'd really love us to sort of noodle around that today because you've you've had so many great experiences and seen all of the things that work and don't work. And, and, and it's interesting thinking about that with the lens of tech overlaid because you've been through the tech mill. You've, you've, seen it, you've seen it from many different sides, Alan. You understand tech. And right now, tech is going through a bit of a moment, isn't it? It's having its, its next comeuppance. Um, what have, any reflections before we dive into the culture bit on just this, the current tech context? What is going on? Well, if you if you know, please please do tell me. I mean, <laughs> if if you look at kind of fang companies in particular and tech layoffs, layman's opinion on this is a prioritization of profit over people. And the sad indictment is that investors are also kind of supporting that. So the share price of most of those companies has risen, even though, or as they've described, layoffs. Yeah. The reality is, though, I think when you do something like that, ultimately, you're damaging your brand in some way. Your share price might grow, 
but your EVP, your recruiting brand, what's it like to work as a company? That's the thing that it can damage. So I think that it's a prioritization of short-term versus long-term. Yeah, and I think thinking about what happened during the pandemic when there was the hiring frenzy across all of those businesses, I think Google hired in the thousands over the last two years. They just this month they laid off fifteen thousand. I mean, they made forty-six billion in profit in twenty twenty-one. These numbers don't make sense to me. So I see the I see the impetus of oh maybe we've overhired. Oh now we need to make some cutbacks. We're still incredibly profitable. Oh yes, we want our share price to be better. But surely now we have damaged you know, any chance of someone looking at us favorably is, is that going through their minds right now? If you were, if you were CEO in those businesses, would you be going, excuse me, hold on, maybe we need to, we need to weigh out the cost benefit analysis of this? A hundred percent. I mean, you spend a moment on LinkedIn at the moment and okay, it was Google's turn this week. And all you'll see is lots of different people leaving Google, all, you know, eloquently describing having a great time in Google, but the suddenness of it. Yeah. And then when you read the subtext, what you often hear is, I'm now looking for a completely different type of business. It's not, I've left Google and now I'm going to work for Facebook or Twitter. It's, I want to work for a different type of business because they've realized that they might have committed five, 10, 15 years to a company, and then suddenly they're out. And that changes the kind of dynamic between employer and employee about what, what to expect in that relationship. Yeah. So it's, it's an opportunity for many of those people to think, I'm going to work for a business that walks the talk, that is about purpose, that is value-centric, that is driven in that way. And so do, do we think that, that, the, that FANG or Big Tech, Big Tech have... Would you say they have been purposeful? Are they had they been culture first and something happened over the, the last the mega disruption with the pandemic and onwards? Or or was that all a little bit of a smoke screen? That's a deep that's a deep question. I've I've many friends who were in Google all the way through from the two thousands. And certainly the Google they describe at that stage was very purposeful was very focused on what we want to do for users more than anything else. And as companies scale, and if you look at the size of a company like Google, but the same for Facebook and Amazon and everyone else, is as you get to a, to a size like that, it's really hard to make that the central part of what you do, especially when you have investors, when you've got shareholders who are looking for a return on that. So I think it, it makes it much harder what I read, so not really my opinion, but what I've read is a lot of those people have said the company's changing as a consequence. That mm. you know we're we're prioritizing and focusing on different things. You know, Microsoft buying or investing in GPT, for instance, that things like that are having an impact, and you have to be able to respond to that in some way. Well, and take us back to Money Supermarket, because that was a similar kind of trajectory for you in that sense, wasn't it? Like, we're scaling fast, we're going public, priorities are shifting, we have shareholders now, we have to really be cautious and and work to a different agenda, or, or was that not the discussion around the boardroom table at the time? 
to to be candid, the discussion around the boardroom table was in the in the first year or so. It was how do we increase the share price? Not because we've got big institutional shareholders, but actually a lot of shareholders in Money Supermarket were local pensioners that had put you know an amount of money that they might have needed in the future into the business and going into recession that share price within the first year was something like 33p and it had yeah. floated at £1.70 so you can see straight away that there's an imperative there of what do we do about that what we did is we put a framework in place we read we all read the same book which was dream with a deadline so it's a kind of a pillar based model with a vision and we used that as the framework of how to set up the business and actually how to describe the purpose. And that sounds quite purposeful as well, thinking about shareholders in that context. Like we need to protect the value mm -hmm. of the people that have invested in us rather than the narrative you get in the media today, which is, oh, shareholders are here to pillage and people don't matter inside the business. Yeah, and, and don't forget that a lot of shareholders were actually employees. Mm. So this is about doing the best thing for all of those people as well. And I mean, the without spoiling the story, over that eight-year period, we grew the share price about 11x. And yeah. it was, when I left, it was more than double what it was at the time of the float. So we, we did do the right thing by shareholders. And do, do you think culture was a contributing factor to that growth at 11 times? 100%. What we what we realized in the business is although you know the city would be interested in revenue and EBITDA, most employees and certainly most customers weren't. What they were interested in is how much money could we save. So actually we we produced and calculated with all of the data that we had a savings calculator of how much money we'd save the UK. And over that period, it was something ridiculous, like two billion pounds. Yeah, and that became a metric that drove the company because it wasn't about the profitability of the company. It was how how are we living against our purpose? If our purpose is help people to save money, help every household to make the most of their money, then how can you have a metric based around that? So it was almost like a purposeful metric. Yeah, it's the so in in our formula, it's problem, impact, and role makes up our purpose. It's that was the impact, wasn't it? So we can actually truly measure the impact of this business through our purpose and understanding the nuance of that. That sounds totally motivating, and not only just a great story for your EVP or for consumers, but actually kind of a get out of bed rallying cry rather than just hey, mm. we made more money today. Yes, absolutely. And that yeah. it did make a big difference to employees, to shareholders, to people that we were hiring. You know, we started to have people joining the company that had worked in NGOs, that had worked for the Samaritans. And the reason is because they wanted to help people. So they just found a different way to help people. So a lot of our community also asks a lot about scaling up and are we going to lose our culture when we scale? And there's always that desire to, to grow and to scale. It feels like that's kind of built into the tech psyche as well, isn't it? We need to scale up. Also, we probably need to exit it sometime. That's a different conversation. But what did, 
what advice do you have on the the right way to use culture to scale? Because I think there's a little bit of a I kind as a as a leader, I maybe kind of believe that culture is going to take us forward towards a vision of growth that we see, but also a little bit of you know we just got to get shit done and make sure we hit our OKRs. So there's that paradox, right, of that putting people first and just performing. And I see those two things are lovingly linked together quite often. But what what do you, what advice do you have, Ellen, in terms of the right way to use culture to drive growth? So I think, firstly, you have to be serious about it. You know, it doesn't happen by accident. You don't just have a good culture because you're not doing anything about it. It's, it's like working out. You know, you have to keep, keep, keep it up. And the first thing I would say is scaling a purpose-driven culture is about doing it carefully and it's about doing it deliberately. So you have a plan. This is what we want to do. This is why we're going to do it. And you can explain that to people, first of all. I think another another big learning for me is about never lowering your hiring standards. So if you're a purpose-driven business, then how closely is an individual that you're trying to hire aligned with that purpose? Can, do they believe, in short? Do they accord with the values of the business? And ultimately, do they buy into the vision? So they're, they're not just joining for day one, they're joining for a long period, hopefully. Yeah. So thinking about it like that, then sometimes you'll have people that will be, well, oh, it's a great culture, I'll join the business. But you need more than just that. You need people that are really bought into the purpose as well, so that they're true believers. And that they have some some sort of passion or magic inside them to deliver mm. on that that purpose, right? That's they they want to bring their their magic to the to the business and, and apply it. Because do you when you've been recruiting through especially through iTech, because I know you were very keen that we hired correctly mm -hmm. at iTech based on our values. Did you feel that asking people about purpose was more important than finding the values fit? Or how did you navigate that just from a pure practitioner point of view? It's a it's a delicate balancing act because you're looking for you're looking for skills. You know, can you do the role? You're also looking for do you want to join any business or do you want to join this business? So that's when it comes down mm. to the very specifics of this is our purpose. We've articulated that to you. Is that something that you can buy into? Yeah. And what, what we sometimes found is there were some people that would kind of nod and say, absolutely, yes, absolutely, yes. And six months later would say, well, I don't really buy into the purpose. Okay. So I think the learning is really kind of honing in on that. You know, this is what we're looking for and being really, really specific about what the company does, why it does what it does, what problem we're solving, and how this particular role can actually help solve that problem. And what's your advice for other COOs or CHROs or chief people and culture officers out there who are dealing with founders who also, or founders or CEOs, who, who might say that culture is important, putting culture first, but actually when the rubber hits the road, are there some indicators that maybe people aren't at the core of their 
thinking at the moment? What's what advice do you have? So much to share here. I mean, <laughs> the first the first thing to think about is it is cheaper to retain someone than it is to hire them. So if you're just focusing on profitability, you're just focusing on performance, but you're not thinking about culture as well. And ultimately, those people are not going to stay because they'll join another company that also says, yes, we're focused on this and we'll pay you a little bit more instead. The retention hook comes from people that are absolutely bought into the purpose, the vision, the values. So where you have a founder or a CEO that's, you know, that is in a different company that's kind of not bought into that, the selling point has to be in the long run, this is actually going to cost you more money because you'll be hiring more people that you'll then lose, that you'll then have to replace and retrain and re-onboard, and then you'll lose those as well. So ultimately, this is a it's a retention play more than anything else. If you build a great culture, people will, one, you build something great, people want to come to it, but two, they'll want to stay with it as well because they're passionate about it. I wish we could do a ghosts of past, present, future with founders and take them into their future selves sometimes, (laughs) hey, and go now feel the pain that you may not have felt in your in your present self. But also when when we when we work with a lot of late stage founders, I mean, founders who are about to exit or retire that what always comes up is legacy, right? I want to have to look back now and and see that I've grown something that I'm really proud of. And then the people light switch or the community light switch or the ESG light switch tends to turn on. Alan, it feels like that's always been your in your essence, right? Yes. You've always been, like you said, I want to be able to explain to my nine children uh, and their children's children that I did, that Papi did something good. Do you think tech can, putting your ghost of Christmas future hat on, looking into your future self, is tech turning around? Do you believe tech can be a force for good? Absolutely. I think it, I, I'm an optimist. So in my heart, I believe you know, anyone can change, anyone can get better. I think the, the, the simplest way to look at this is at this moment in time, purpose-driven businesses will do better. They'll be the people that will be hiring and people will want to join. Maybe people have worked for fan companies before that are looking now for something completely different. And that is the, the kind of the rallying cry for why you should join that type of business. Anyone can become a purpose-driven business. You just have to focus on why you're doing what you're doing. Focus on what's the problem you're trying to solve in the marketplace and why did you decide to solve that particular problem? And it might be a product you're making better than anyone else. You know, business cards being the example with Moo. I want to make something that's so beautiful, everyone will want to use that and they'll want to use that to connect with people. Then that, that's brilliant. It might also be a product, but you've got a product that solves the problem because you've seen an underrepresented group or you've seen some people that couldn't use this particular product. Finding that solution and saying this is why we do what we do is a great idea. 
And then, as you said before, let then let's measure that impact, like we did with Money Supermarket. Let's show that we've been doing that. It's a great it's a great way for any founder to feel their legacy into the future. Is like I'm going to actually see the impact that I've made, and for everyone there to feel that they're making that contribution. Are your kids Gen mostly Gen Z, Gen Z for our UK and Canadian listeners? Alan, are you do you have you don't have any millennials, do you? You're not no, that old. No millennials. <laughs> Are your Gen Z children also talking about this? Definitely, yes. Yeah, they're thinking about you know B Corps. They're thinking about what social good a particular business does. They're thinking about how it looks after its people. All of those drivers are so important when you're going into your your first role. Yeah. And as they are the consumers of the future as well, maybe it's time that we listen to them too. Why not? This has been wonderful. Thank you, Alan. Thank as you. always at this part of the show, we have some rapid fire questions. It's just for you to tap into your intuition as I fire out these seven or eight questions to you. Feeling ready? I'm ready. I am okay. ready. Okay, here we go. Alan, this is your rapid fire round. What three words would you use to describe the workplace culture you'd like to lead? Have to start with transparent, fair, and driven. What three words would you use to define the future of work? Ooh, I could almost use the same three, but I would say purposeful, fulfilling, and passionate. Which one quality is your superpower or strength? And bonus point if you pick a within eight qualities word. <laughs> well, I've worked with you since 2015 or so. I should <laughs> know these by now. Love would be my superpower. Ooh, can I dig into that one a little bit? Because that's I do see that quality in you very much. And that is one that not everybody picks out of the cards, out of our eight qualities. Love is often the one at the end. Can I ask what... I know we're in the rapid fire, but I'd love to dig in. What makes you choose that one? It's, I think it's at the core of what I believe. I, it, it's just, it's something that's so, some of it, I guess, is, you know, because I'm a father, but it's just at the core of what I believe. I, I believe in the good of people, and I just really honed in on that straight away as soon as I read the, uh, the card. Yeah, awesome. Okay, back to the rapid fire. Which one quality is your development area or stretch? Patience. Next question. <laughs> Could we wrap this up, please? Yeah. What is your most treasured spot outside of work? So ignoring holidays, because that's, that's too obvious. It would be my home gym because I just love working out, absolutely love that. And the other is there's a small forest near where I live that I can walk through on my commute. And I just get such a buzz out of walking amongst trees, simple thing. And you often would walk home all the way from Camden to your house to get home. That wasn't just a pandemic thing. That was just Alan traversing the backwaters of London <laughs> to get home. Is that is walking a med is that a meditative thing for you? Are you working while you're walking, or is it just I'm clearing down my day or powering up my day? It's a powering powering up and clearing down. Mm. Don't do calls. Sometimes listen to music, but mostly just kind of absorb nature. And in my commute, it was something like an eight-mile walk in total. Yeah. 
So it's a great kind of base exercise to build in as well. Walking at London pace as well, which having now living in California, I realize it's 14 times too fast to, to walk in London. Yeah. Uh, is there a person or brand you'd like to shine a light on today? Okay, I think it would be Joe Wicks, the body coach. Big, big fan. That's a purposeful business gives back to society, believes in lifetime fitness, genuinely wants to help people, helped everyone during the pandemic, helps children, walks the talk. Yeah, and totally sort of rose to the the challenge of the pandemic and helped yeah. people, help guide people through that moment. What's happening with him today? I haven't really been following his story. Or is, is he on the sim similar trajectory? Yeah, I would say so. It's built, building a great business from what mm. I've seen, yes. Yeah, cool. Okay, and finally, if you had to pick one song that represented who you are as a leader, what would it be? You'll, you'll get the sentiment behind this one, I'm sure. It would be Eminem, a vastly misunderstood person. <laughs> and it would... <laughs> and it, <laughs> it would <laughs> God, <laughs> and it would be till I collapse. I'm not familiar with that part of his back catalog. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Eminem, till I collapse, is that is that a context for you at the moment, Alan? What's okay, the sentiment? I know you'll go and look up the lyrics later, but to to save you. This is focused on almost a, you could, you could be lazy, you could lie in bed, you could do this, but no, I will continue doing this, whether I'm good at it or not, I'm going to continue doing this until I collapse. I'm just, okay. you know, this is going to be my kind of my life's work. Yeah. And, and get into like, get up and get into it. I get it. Yeah. Okay. That's it. I'll pop that, pop that on with my, with my Cheerios this morning. I'm sure. I won't, but yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Rocket Man by Elton John just so that I could sing, but we'll leave that for our next episode. Yeah, um, someone else to pick that I will. Someone will finally, one day, someone will say Rocket Man. Alan, this has been a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really lovely to see you. And the Year of the Rabbit is going to be good for you. I feel it in my soul. So do I. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Boom. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed learning about purposeful, culture-driven tech. Tune into our podcast every other week for more episodes on what's happening in the culture and leadership space, what's on the minds of the leaders committed to change in our community, and other future of work content that you crave. Reimagining Work From Within is available wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>